0: This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, Please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul.
1: Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we have a first on our show, a woman priest, Marilyn Myers. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Saul. It's great to be with both of you.
1: It's always a blessing. Could you uh, give us a little background of where you come
2: from?
0: Oh, where I come from? Well, let's see. Uh, I'm born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. Grew up in Baltimore City and also in Chicago. My family moved back and forth between my parents' hometowns. Uh, We settled back in Baltimore in 1963. Um, And my husband and I live in Harford County, Maryland, in an area called Forest Hill. Uh, And we've been out here since 1991. That's where I'm from, anyway. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so you've you've you know, I have come across this situation here, and I we spoke just before we began here about uh, my my interest in how it is and where it is your journey started. How did you know you've always been Catholic? You say, and uh, how did you find this this journey in your faith life?
0: Ah, uh, well. I have been uh, born and raised Catholic all my life, always will be. Um, I've, for the mm, past 40 years, I would say, I have worked in ministry in one form or another. Um, I was 20 years old. I left home to join a religious community, the Daughters of Charity, and uh, learned a great deal from them. You know, they're considered... The best nurses in the world and also excellent teachers. Um, I was with the daughters for almost six years Mm -hmm. and uh, returned home to Baltimore uh, trying to figure out where was God really calling me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And at the time, um, I had a, a very dear priest friend. He was a Vincentian priest. And I said to him, I thought I was making promises and vows for a lifetime. What happened? And he said, you know, sometimes God calls people to things for a lifetime. Other people, God calls to new and different things all the time. And it made the biggest difference in my life. Um, so every professional position I've had since then, I've considered it to be ministry in one form or another. So for about 22 years, I was involved with uh, the Catholic school system,
2: Mm.
0: both on the high school and the college level as a campus minister. And and then around the year 2000 or so, I had thought a lot about the church not ordaining women. And Mm. I was very much an advocate to have the Roman Catholic Church ordain women to the diaconate and the priesthood. And I just thought, you know, Jesus can call women to priesthood just as much as He calls men hmm. to priesthood.
3: I was going to ask you if Rome had kind of uh, challenged you or challenged this group.
0: Um. Well, they they do in a way to um, generally say that if a woman attempts ordination, um, we are considered automatically excommunicated. Hmm. It's considered like a temporary excommunication, so uh, with that, if you were to um, decide that you made a mistake in doing this and want to come back to the institutional church, um, that could happen. However, um, you know, I know that some of our women uh, across the United States have received formal papers of excommunication, but I have never, ever heard from anybody in my archdiocese uh, that I've been excommunicated or received any kind of papers. Um, I know that I'm not able to work in a Catholic institution any longer. I Mm. do know that. Mm -hmm. I I knew that was the sacrifice that, you know, I was giving up uh, at the time.
1: So how many churches within the country uh, form this new powerful movement?
0: Oh, well, let's see. I'm not sure if I have exact numbers, but what I can tell you is Mm -hmm. that we are an international organization. So this all started in Europe in 2002. The first group of women who were ordained, there were seven of them. There was one American citizen there being Mm -hmm. ordained that day. And since then, the movement has grown. It's become an organization around the world. Um, I would say, uh, I think we have somewhere around 275, 280 members uh, who have been ordained. Um, Most of those members uh, live in the United States. We have women throughout Europe, um, throughout South Africa. There are four in South Africa. We have a woman in Taiwan. We have women in (laughs) South America and uh, in the United States and Canada. Um, so it's really, it's it's grown, uh, but yet we run into so many people who haven't even heard about us yet, mm-hmm. and so in the United States, we have what we call four regions. I belong to the eastern region of Roman Catholic women priests. There's a Midwest region, there's a region called Great Waters, and then there's our western region, and within all those various states, uh, we have some women priests who are Setting up faith communities. Um, those of us who have done that um, uh, usually find other denominations where you know we're able to go in and rent space from them on Sundays to hold our Catholic Sunday liturgy. So we might use churches like Episcopal churches, uh, United Church of Christ. Um, you know, different different places like that um, to be able to hold our Sunday liturgies, and then we have other women who are simply working as chaplains, um, spiritual directors. Uh, you name it, they do it. <laughs> so lots of different forms of ministry, and especially for social justice, uh, many of us are advocates in the area of social justice.
3: When you were doing teaching, you were not being looking to go into the nun to be a nun. Then. You were just looking to be an educator, correct?
0: Right. So, so I was a, a religious sister, a religious woman for for six years with the Daughters of Charity, and um, when I left them, that's when I went to work for other Catholic institutions. So I've worked in a couple of hospitals um, during that time. I was a child life specialist on pediatrics at a Catholic hospital. Um, I've also worked with children in, um Uh, residential centers, Um, and then I began to go to work as a campus minister at a couple of Catholic, well, more than a couple, three Catholic high schools and a Catholic college uh, in the state of Maryland, and uh, so that was where that 22 years came in. And then while I was working as a campus minister, um, this calling to priesthood came to me, and you know, I fought it for a long time because I kept saying in my own prayer, you know, Jesus, how can you be calling me to this when it's not <laughs> possible <laughs> in our institutional church? And when my husband and I had a dear priest friend over for dinner one night, uh, it was he who who asked me, "Had I had I not remembered hearing about Roman Catholic women priests? And I had forgotten. This was several <laughs> years after two mm-hmm. thousand. 2000- too, because I remember hearing about their ordination, but I never heard anything afterwards. Um, so, what I did at that point was to look up their organization, and he and he and a, another friend of mine gave me someone's name in the Baltimore area who had already been ordained uh, a priest with Roman Catholic women priest, and I went to see her and began a discernment period. Mm-hmm. Uh, with her and uh, with the local community that had already been established uh, in the Baltimore area. So um, that's how everything got started and, (laughs) you know, needed to, uh, I I guess I took a couple of years uh, before actually making application. Um, But then I began, I was accepted as a candidate for the diaconate and uh, was ordained deacon in 2010. And then I was ordained a priest in 2011.
1: You know, it's good that you found your true calling, because as I look at your educational background, you have a degree in childhood education, a degree in social work. Were you trying to run away from your true calling?
0: (laughs) Well, it's interesting that that degree in social work actually came during and after my time with the Daughters of Charity. Okay. Uh, It was going to be one of my ministries had I remained in community life. Uh, And uh, so then I was trying to finish up that degree. And, uh, you know, I worked with uh, adolescent boys who were in a residential center. Um, They had been court ordered Mm -hmm. there um, because of some issues, you know, they were having at home or or problems with the law type of thing. And, um, you know, went from there then into the Catholic school system. Um, So uh, I later on studied uh, holistic spirituality, uh, which was a heavy concentration of theology and psychology at Chestnut Hill College. And, uh, you know, thought of all sorts of things. There was a time (laughs) I wanted to build my own wellness center, you know, and have a lot of programming and spiritual direction Uh, you know, wellness, health and wellness uh, types of programming and things like that. So kind of dabbled in a lot of things uh, over the years. And uh, uh, but certainly when this calling came to be, um, you know, I kind of put my whole heart and soul into our community, uh, Living Water Inclusive Catholic community. And um, I'm one of eight women who helped to minister to that community. And we have different locations throughout Maryland. Um, and just, um, taking a look at, uh, not only priestly ministry, but as we are studying for ordination, um, we are usually asked to either study spiritual direction, which I had already done Mm. before meeting RCWP and or to, uh, become a chaplain. So I, after ordination, that's when I uh, was invited to think about chaplaincy too, and went ahead with my studies for that.
3: Was there one particular person, male or female, other than the the, the priest that came to visit and tell you, Hey, why don't you look into this as you were growing (laughs) up, as you were, you know, going through, uh, going through all that early life where we all get formed and, and challenged. And how did you, uh, is there someone or something that happened that uh, because you have a very firm focus, and I'm just wondering where that came from?
0: Well, I think I have to give credit to my my dear mom for that because oh. she certainly raised us in the church, uh, was quite an Irish Catholic. Uh, when I was about eight years old, eight and nine years old, my mother used to let me dress up and say mass for my little brother and sister <laughs> oh,
2: <wow. laughs> really.
0: You know, saying mass uh, back in those days, it was still in Latin. So I remember my mother teaching me the Latin, you know, and I would hear it at church and have my little missal. But I used to say mass all the time. And I thought, uh, I wish my mother had been alive when I was ordained, because Mm. I would love to have asked her, her her real feelings about the church. I think she was ahead of her time. And, uh, you know, so I'm not sure I have uh, the answers on, on that about her, but she certainly raised us to be faithful. And, um, I, I, there were teachers along the way that Mm -hmm. I think uh, one in particular that I'm still very good friends with. Um, she lives up in new England and we're always in touch with each other. And, um, she, she actually, we had at that point, I was a third grade student at St. Dominic's in Baltimore. We had just moved back from Chicago to be with my grandparents here, and uh, you know our our uniforms were totally different and everything. And this teacher told my mother not to spend extra money on buying new uniforms and and uniform shoes. So she had my sister and I come up to the convent, and they measured us and everything, and the sisters made our uniforms. Mm-hmm. And I remember one day she actually took me to a shoe store to get the right kind of uniform shoes that, you know, the kids at St. Dominic's were wearing. And I'll never forget. Um, I think my parents were, you know, my dad was trying to find a job and there wasn't a lot of money at the time. And, and this sister, this daughter of charity, um, after I tried the shoes on, said, "How do they feel?" And I said, "Oh, they're great. They feel fine." And she told the man, "She said we'll take them." And I remember grabbing her hand and I said, "Oh, but I can't because uh, my mommy didn't give me money to buy the shoes." And Sister Mary Williams said, "Oh, honey, your mommy and I took care of that. Don't worry about that at all." And for mm. years, I thought my mother gave her the money to buy the shoes <laughs> until I. <laughs> actually had a conversation with my mom about it and she said no the sisters did that so I think they had they instilled something in me that was very special and it's interesting to me that I ended up many years later joining the Daughters of Charity. Um, But then of course you know leaving them and uh, one of the sisters actually said to me at one point, are you sure you're not supposed to be married? <laughs> and, <laughs> wow. Uh, and this, wow. I, did, I did meet my husband uh, four years after I left the Daughters to Charity, so I always call him the greatest gift God's ever given me. But mm-hmm. uh, my husband's uh, very in- instrumental in my um, saying yes to Being called to priesthood, he's very supportive, always has been. Um, It hasn't been the easiest road because, of course, I had to leave the Catholic school system. Um, That uh, caused uh, a long period of unemployment. Mm -hmm. For me, it was terribly difficult to find another job. Um, So, eventually, that's when I studied um, chaplaincy and, uh, you know. Had two very good places to to do those studies at Johns Hopkins Bayview Hospital and uh, York Wellness, uh, excuse me, York Wellspan Hospital.
1: Mm. You know, um, your mother might have been prophetic. You know, uh, to have you do mass at that young age, and yes. here you are, you a priest. Uh, yeah, that 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 looks more prophetic to me.
0: Yes, you know, I. have thought about that a few times, you know, it's kind of that idea of she was ahead of her times. And yes, prophetic is a very good word there.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, so, you know, I, I think you might be right about that. Someone asked me, um, if your mother, this was when I was ordained, if your mother had still been alive, what would she have said to you <laughs> about being ordained a priest? And I Said to them, Well, she probably would have said the same thing when I told her I was coming home from the Daughters of Charity, and that was, Marilyn Marie, do you know what in the hell you're doing? <laughs> 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 and, you know, at the time I said to her, I don't know, but I'm just gonna trust in God that God's leading me where I need to be and what I need to do and how I'm gonna make a difference, you know, in the world. And um, so you're right. I that's nice. Thank you for saying that about mom being a prophet. Yeah. Yes, being sure. pathetic. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. With that, we'll take a little break and
3: then we'll be right back. Sure. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. Welcome back to our time with Marilyn Myers. Uh, Marilyn, you were talking before about your journey, your walk in going with the Catholic Church. Uh, you're in a position now, uh, not being, a, not being supported. I guess you would say supported or uh, acknowledged through the, the 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 Holy Catholic Church. Uh, I. I f- was wondering if there was any kind of pain or s- uh, sorrow involved when you made this decision.
0: Well, you know, I, I think to look at it um, wholeheartedly, I would have to certainly admit that, yes, there was pain involved. Um, the pain, first of all, of of accept- making the decision that, yes, this is what Jesus is calling me to. So I'm saying yes in response. And at the same time, leaving the institution, wondering, you know, what that was going to be like, wondering what the reaction would be from many of my colleagues that I had worked with in the past and friends and family who were also Catholic. And I, I have to say that even though I felt some, some sorrow in leaving, I did run across so much support from many individuals within the institutional church uh, for what I I was doing, you know, and um, uh, there was pain and sorrow in the fact that I had to leave the school where I was teaching. Now, I was Mm -hmm. fully aware of the risk I was running, you know, still being there. I hadn't told anybody there that I had been ordained but I was I was actively looking for other work outside the church mm. so that I could get another job and and you know go in a different direction and be ordained. Um, many of our women have been through this, so of course, hearing their stories and about their journey was a great help to me. I think they could um, truly understand what I was going through at the time, and um, you know I did because I was still at a Catholic school at the time, I was considered a confidential candidate until I was able to leave. But, um, somebody found out <laughs> <laughs> and told the archdiocese and told my school anonymously, oh. anonymously, they did that. So yes, I had to leave. And, uh, But again, you know, just receiving such a great deal of support from my friends and family was was enough. It really was. And things that I miss um, when I am back in Catholic churches, uh, in an institutional Catholic church, um, you know, because I attend a lot of funerals of my patients. Mm -hmm. So while I'm sitting there, you know, of course, it's bringing back a lot of memories. Um, I tend to miss architectural design. I I like the more simplicity um, uh, in churches, and uh, I like to sit in the round. Um, When we're in other churches for our liturgies, sometimes that's not always possible, but it depends on the church. Sometimes we have a room where we can set up chairs in the circular, you know, Mm -hmm. design. Um, So we want to bring everyone close uh, as we're celebrating Eucharist. Um, But Yeah. So I would say in my own prayer life, I've tried to um, give that pain and sorrow over to God and truly trust in our loving creator that, you know, this is where I'm meant to be and Mm -hmm. where I'm meant to be far outweighs those feelings of, you know, pain. So, and it's been a number of years now. So I've, have kind of moved on and and there's been a great deal of happiness and joy. And, um, you know, the the things that I experience in our faith community and also in my work as a chaplain have just been uh, such blessing to me Mm. in life that it really keeps me going in my calling.
1: Now, that's a good transition to hospice chaplaincy. Uh, Every hospice chaplain has a story why they do what they do. So what is your story?
0: (laughs) Mm, Yeah, well, so my story with chaplaincy, um, I think some of it is rooted in the fact that I had 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 other jobs in hospitals, uh, a couple of hospitals before, long ago. Um, So I can remember what the atmosphere was like and the environment and um, how I how I was with each of the patients and what I was learning from them, especially when I worked on pediatrics. Um, I would say that, uh, while I was uh, unemployed and the idea came from another priest friend of mine, um, to study chaplaincy with her, uh, that got the ball rolling and, uh, we both applied, um, to a hospital, uh, Johns Hopkins Bayview, and went through our internship there. And um, I can remember being asked if we had an interest uh, that we really wanted to work at while we were there. Now, both of you know that in chaplaincy, you get experience in all areas of the hospital, Um, but we were supposed to kind of pick a specialty that we wanted to focus on. And it was interesting to me at both Bayview and at York Hospital, no one wanted oncology. <laughs> and I was mm. the only one who kept raising my hand saying, I'll work, I'll work with cancer patients. Uh, you know, I, I would really want to be part of this journey that mm. they're on. I've always considered myself a lifelong learner. Um, you know, it's not about me, but it's about them and their stories Help to instill something in me. So, you know, many of them might end up thanking me for coming to visit, but I end up thanking them and they have no idea, you know, what the experience of the visit about them has done for me. But it teaches me a great deal about living life. And um, so I always end up feeling so very blessed that I've, you know, have been able to walk part of the journey, you know, with them. And uh, so I did the same thing at York Hospital. When I went there for my residency, we were full-time students. Um, I offered to take on oncology, uh, and and I was in the cancer center there. Um, but I also got a lot of, uh, like I said before, a great deal of, of experience in all areas of the hospital, emergency department, the ICUs, you name it, being on call, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, so...
3: Brings back lots of memories to me about the, uh, uh, I have my, my CP experience and where it lived was that I, I learned so much about myself. How did this experience teach you more about that has now guided you into what I see in your, uh, uh your resume that, uh, led to a lot of spiritual direction and those type of things.
0: hmm you know, I think it was the fact that I had studied spiritual direction that also helped me in the experience of becoming a chaplain, and it helped me to recognize even more what was going on in me um, mm. at the time, coming to know myself even better, um, kind of working out issues maybe that I thought I had dealt with in the past, but. But you know, isn't it interesting how you might run into a patient, and something they say they say triggers <laughs> something absolutely.
3: in our house. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, absolutely, so, yes.
0: Uh, kind of taking that back to some reflection and prayer and uh, conversation with other chaplains, uh, other residents. You know, to kind of work through it, and you know, have I come to some resolution? Uh, mm-hmm. And So that was always pretty helpful throughout my CPE experience. Um, Plus, you know, learning the fact that it wasn't about anything I was bringing to the experience with a patient. It was more what the patient, you know, what it was all about the patient. I think I'm trying to say Uh, I might have become even more of a uh, attentive listener so that I could pick up on what they were saying. And spiritual direction had helped me with that, too. We listen very well Hmm. for for different things that are coming up in the conversation that the patient might offer that we can then pick up on and take them to a deeper place. You know, ask another question that might, you know, get them a little bit, you know, further down deeper into their their own beings and, uh, you know, talk about, you know, have them talk about life and what they're expecting and what they're hoping for, things like that.
3: Did you have a particular story that you would remember or comes to mind from your oncology that has, of course, led you then more into the hospice program?
0: Yes. Um, hmm. Um, You know, it's interesting some of the connections that are made, um, whether the patient knows it or not. Uh, when I was at York Hospital, one of the first patients I met was a woman uh, about my age. She might have been a bit younger. Um, so I would, well, and she uh, she was there with uh, metastatic breast cancer. Um, I remember she was wearing a sweatshirt that was the polar bear plunge. I don't mm. know if you're familiar mm-hmm.
2: with that, but. Yep. Yep.
0: It's real big here in the East Coast, and it raises money. Uh, you know, uh, so anyway, you know, I happened to mention the shirt to her. I said, oh, I said, you know, I know some family members that also go to the Polar Bear Plunge. And that was like all I said. And um, as I was leaving her that day, she said to her mother, mom, you remember Donna and Steve Schultz? Aren't they the two up this way that uh, lost a son and they do a lot of uh, fundraising for academic scholarships? They're the two that went on the polar bear plunge with us. Do you remember? And it it nearly threw me because Donna and Steve Schultz is my sister and brother-in-law. Oh, and they, my gosh. <laughs> and they... They had lost a 20-year-old son, our nephew, who who died as a result of a car accident on his way home from work one day. He was a college student, um, wonderful, wonderful young man, and um, we loved him dearly, and I just couldn't get over it. I couldn't go to see the next patient. I had to take myself down to the chapel. <laughs> <laughs> and have my few minutes of, oh, my God, oh, my God. And it, and I realized as I was in the chapel that it was Wellspan York Hospital that my nephew was brought to after the accident. And, of course, he died at the scene. And I remember my sister telling me at the time that they wouldn't let any of the family go to the hospital to see his body. Uh, there was no need because he had ID on him. <laughs> And they were able to send troopers to the house to let them know. So, anyhow, so those kinds of connections and stories, and then that would help, those experiences would help me, you know, revisit an area in my own life, in my own experience, and, you know, what was it still trying to teach me? So, it, that's w- one thing. I you was know, wondering how- why
3: you knew those people's names so well.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and you were able to say it right away. It was busting. Yeah. That's right. It was right there. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. So I truly appreciate uh, you know, I think when patients are able to share their own stories and their how they're making connections, you know, at this time in life, at especially at the end end of life stage. And, you know, again, trying to share with um, their own family members and friends what's important to them. And, you know, right now I have a gentleman who um, actually lost his wife a year and a half ago and she was on service with us. And when we got his name, we, we couldn't believe it, you know, but he was later diagnosed with cancer and he has three young children. They're. Uh, let's see, 17, and I think 20 and 22.
2: Hmm.
0: And um, so you can just imagine what's going on in his mind, that here his three children are going to be losing both parents someday. soon. you know, um, I, again, it's, he, he decided to call it, he's doing a farewell tour. Wow. So even in this time of COVID, he's being very careful about just having like a few friends over and they sit out on the deck and everybody's wearing their mask. And, but he said, I want to cook up some dogs on the grill and have a few brews, you know, with my <laughs> friends.
2: That's right. And
0: um, when I went to visit him after one of those get togethers, I, I said to him, how's your farewell tour going? Hmm. And he said, you know, I never realized how hard it was going to hit me. I'm never going to see them again. And, you know, so it's those kind of conversations, uh, you know, and, and again, listening on my part hmm. to help take him even deeper. And,
3: um, you know. So. You get those special opportunities, and those are gifts from God that we, yes. uh, sometimes we have to help guide the family to understand how much it is a gift that we have received and, uh, and or giving. Uh, I was with a I was with a patient yesterday, and I was talking to his wife, and she kept saying he was so um, he hasn't responded much to anything lately, and he's just declining. Mm. And I don't always believe that because I think I, I I'm I'm trying to understand how God works, but that's not the way it is. Uh, you know, I just keep learning. Unfortunately, get get to see some of it, and yes. and then when I'm leaving, and this guy was had his eyes closed 90% of the time with me, had his eyes open as I was saying goodbye to him and his wife and telling her that, you know, make sure you continue to need any help, you know, don't be afraid to call, blah, blah, blah. And I raised my hand to say goodbye to him. Mm -hmm. And there he is laying in bed and his hands coming up from underneath his covers to say goodbye to me. Uh, And I thought, holy moly. Yes. What a gift I just received. Thank you, sir.
0: That's right. That is right. Had a gentleman who, um, who was a former priest. Uh, he had left long ago, found a, a woman that was very special in his life. She was already a widow with seven children, and um, they married. Many, many years later, fast forward, he becomes our patient. And they were both in their mid-80s at this point. And I remember getting a call from her after he died and she asked me if i had any experience besides being a chaplain maybe in spiritual direction because she used to be able to get out to see a spiritual director mm-hmm. but she was going through cancer at the time she wasn't Ooh. she wasn't like hospice ready yet so i agreed to see her on my own time and offer spiritual direction she knew that i was an ordained priest and maybe i should also explain Um, When it comes to Catholic patients that I minister to, um, if I know and I have found out through them that they're active in their parish and, you know, they're probably going to have a funeral mass at their parish, I might not even tell them that I'm an ordained priest because, again, it's not about me. It's Mm -hmm. about them. And I'm the first person to call their priest at their Catholic parish to arrange for the priest to come in to offer the sacrament of the sick and the anointing and all. And now if I meet Catholic patients who um, have been inactive for many years for lots of different reasons. And of course you hear their story, you know, mm-hmm. many, many of them were upset about the child sex abuse scandal Um you know, along with lots of, they even go back to Vatican II and Humanae Vitae and the birth control issue. And, you know, so they might not have been in church for a long time, and yet they consider themselves, you know, still very much Catholic. And uh, so we talk about their spirituality and and I will sometimes then offer to them, uh, would you like me to call a priest from the nearest parish? And for the most part, they say no, because they Mm -hmm. haven't, there in a long time. Mm-hmm. And then I'll say, I feel nudged, <laughs> you know, I feel nudged to then say to them, well, if, if it's important to you that you would like to receive the sacraments of the church, I want you to know that I'm also an ordained Catholic priest. And, you know, Joe, like your reaction, <laughs> yeah. earlier, um you know, I, I will... Sometimes say to them, um, yes, you're hearing me correctly. Because <laughs> some to me, I know I've been away a long time, but did the Catholic Church change something? Change yeah, that's something right. so I didn't hear about. It. So um, this particular couple, um, I saw her quite a few times for spiritual direction. And then she began to make a decline, and her cancer was pretty much raging at that point. And um, and I was with her uh, as her chaplain. Okay. And then she, she asked me, you know, in front of her family one day, she said, you know, I want to be anointed. And I remember her sister saying, well, I can call St. So-and-so's, you know, to, and she goes, no, 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 we have a priest right here. Mm. I want Carolyn to do it. And, oh my, you know, again, what a blessing <laughs> that was to be able to do that. So.
1: Yeah. with well, that will take a little break and we'll be right back.
3: Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice
0: Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com.
1: I'm Sohle and You're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We are continuing our awesome conversation with Marilyn. Uh, I also understand that you're a Reiki practitioner. Could you explain more to our our audience about that?
0: Oh, sure I can. So so Reiki is um, one of the healing modalities that's out there uh, in the field of health and wellness. Um, And uh, I found out about Reiki through one of our other Roman Catholic women priests um, who had studied it to a point of becoming, she's a Reiki master. And uh, she was offering Reiki to people on a regular basis. Uh, it was founded by a, a doctor in Japan, I believe in the mid 1800s, 1847, somewhere in there. Wow. And um, the, it's a like a hands-on healing modality. You can either place your hands right on uh, the person's body. So it would start at the top of the head Uh, around the ears, the eyes, um, the throat, uh, shoulders, arms, top of the chest, the breathing area, the abdomen, um, hips, knees, ankles, right down to the toes. And Reiki helps to move any like toxic or, or negative energy that's in the body. And it helps the body to release that negative energy. Um, If you had the image of, um, you know, what are we holding on to in the body? If it's released, how can God then fill that part of the body again with healing light and energy that the person might need? So and you don't have to be you don't have to be physically sick to receive Reiki. Anybody can receive Reiki. You know, again, it's part of the wellness uh, community around the world that offers it. So, um, so on my on my own time, I tend to offer Reiki. But the place where I work too, Gilcrest, also has Reiki practitioners that will go out to see our patients and offer it too. That did come to a stop, uh, well, temporary stop, you know, when COVID nineteen hit. But um, you know, I'm sure we'll be resuming that hopefully someday soon. So. And, uh,
1: What are the levels?
0: So um, there's considered uh, two levels, Reiki 1 and Reiki 2, when someone is actually studying to become a practitioner. Um, I did Reiki 2 and then um, was considered uh, attuned. Uh, There's also the Reiki level of master. So if you become a Reiki master... Um, you study even more, but you are also able to teach Reiki if you're a master, so i'm a, I'm a practitioner level too.
1: Mm. Uh, could you give us and maybe to our audience the benefits of that practice?
0: Sure. So I think that um, certainly the intention on the part of the practitioner for the uh, for the client, to receive um, any healing that they might need or um, or better uh, wellness, um, you know, feeling better, it would be certainly a benefit um, that they would receive uh, feeling lighter, you know, in a way that uh, some negative energy has been released um, in, in receiving Reiki. Um, another benefit is there uh, sometimes Reiki practitioners will join as a group, whether they're present as a group or you're all in your own homes, and intentionally send Reiki to someone that we've been thinking about. It could be someone that lives on the other side of this country. And there seems to be research that that person still benefits from receiving Reiki, even if they're not aware of it. Mm. Uh, So it's an interesting uh, study. Of, you know, uh, and I don't like to use the word alternative, but definitely a holistic practice. Hmm. You know, when you look at the whole person and what they're experiencing and uh, benefiting from Reiki.
3: So if you go and visit one of your patients and you all of a sudden you observe they're having some pain issues Mm -hmm. and Course, you'll ask questions about was it from, was it, where's it hurt, blah, blah, blah. Does it ever come to your mind that you would then offer them to use Reiki?
0: Yes, it does. Um, However, um, in our roles, uh, where I work anyway, what I would do is offer them the idea of have you tried any holistic modalities? Um, And uh, if they haven't, you know, I might explain, you know, what Reiki is. Um, and let them know that uh, Gilcrest has volunteers who go out to homes to offer Reiki. Okay. Um, there has been one uh, patient that I have that I have also offered Reiki to. Um, she's also a member of our, our faith community. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a little bit different there. But for the most part, I would, as a chaplain, spend my time offering spiritual care and then pulling in a referral. Uh, such as a Reiki uh, practitioner to offer that, and or like we have music therapists and people like that too.
3: Yeah, I think it follows along with the uh, the whole situation with uh, you're visiting your patients. Your priest, how are now today in this day and age, COVID nineteen, how are you able to anoint? How are you able to offer Eucharist? How does that work?
0: Yeah. And that's been difficult. Um, so, uh, where I work at Gilchrist, um, our chaplains, we have some chaplains who are in residential care. So that might be assisted living uh, facilities or long-term care facilities. And for a very long time, they were locked out of those facilities and Mm -hmm. they were only able to communicate with their patients, maybe by, um, uh, FaceTime calls. Right. Um, now, when COVID first happened for us who were in home care, I think it was probably the first six weeks um, they took the chaplains and social workers out of the field. Mm-hmm. So we were working remotely from home, and again doing FaceTime with as many patients as we could. Of course, I find a lot of patients uh, don't have the capability <laughs> to do FaceTime, maybe on their phones or whatever. And um, but those that that did, you know, at least we were. Able to see them at right. the same time we were talking on the phone or whatever, computer. And um, as far as like offering the sacraments, um, I did call quite a few uh Catholic parishes to see if they were sending anybody out. Uh, they too had stopped sending out their lay ministers of Eucharist um, to give communion because of COVID 19, and even the priests had stopped doing that for a while. Eventually in our area, and I think it might be the same in a lot of other places right now, churches have reopened to a certain percent of participants Mm -hmm. for Sunday liturgy, and I've noticed that the um, ministers of the Eucharist and priests have begun to, you know, go back out on their rounds again. Um, So they are available. I, um, I have anointed... Maybe only two patients in this COVID time that requested it, and I was very careful. You know, we go in in full PPE gear, Mm -hmm. so very careful to pour out the holy oils into something I haven't used before, and of course using a gloved hand. Uh, I have to admit, personally, I have not given communion to anybody because I just I don't have it uh, to offer. But I think the idea of covid-19 if it's taught us anything it's taught us how we are all part of the of the body of christ and it's not the church building we go to
2: but exactly. it's
0: who we are and how we carry christ to one another you know and in our encounters however they may be during this covid-19 time
1: yeah the pandemic has caused a lot of moral injury uh, to yeah. so many people in so many fields Now, we've never done this on the show, but I'm going to ask you, could you say a prayer of blessing for everyone listening?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, knowing, knowing that we are in the presence of God all the time, let us take a moment to take a deep breath and... Know that we live in that peace that God offers us, even in the most difficult time period that we find ourselves in right now around the world. Creator God, I ask you to continue to watch over everyone around the world this day. Watch over all of our first responders, especially those who are working in our hospitals In any healthcare agencies. We pray for all who are isolated due to the COVID 19, um, especially the elderly who might not understand why their loved ones can't be with them right now. We pray for those who are lonely during this time. And as we are each called, Um, in our own faith traditions, whatever they might be, um, to minister to your people, whoever they might be. We ask for your continued blessings upon the work, especially of chaplains who have responded to your calling, who are trying their best to offer listening hearts and ears, uh, To be able to continue to support spiritually, to continue to give care, especially to family caregivers, Uh, help us to continue to walk this journey with each person that we encounter and being very much aware of all the lessons that we are learning in this life. Help us to be grateful for the many gifts that we've been given and to be able to give back. We pray all of this in your good and gracious name. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you very much.
0: You are welcome, Saul. (laughs) Thank you for asking me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that concludes our program. Uh, That was um, Marilyn Mayers, Hospice Chaplain with Chris Hospice. Thank you for listening.